Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can feel it when you finish a poem or almost finished a poem. You feel like you're, you're standing in a bright light and there's the castle, you know, and it's, you know, in your head. It's all in your head, of course, but... It feels like you can't fuck it up from here. It's your home. You, <laughs> yeah. you made it, you know. And that's the most intense feeling. Very difficult to, to even share that with anyone. But the feeling I have when I get there is, uh, well, it's like winning on the horses. On this week's episode of Northeast Arnhem Land with Mon, I was lucky enough to speak with the phenomenal storyteller and ridiculously talented and hilarious, Jared Zockling. This guy wears many hats. He's a poet, artist, writer, family man, kitchen dancer and self-confessed hedonist. He's published a bunch of books and has lived an extraordinary life. His adventures have taken him around the country and overseas. However, he's been in the Northern Territory for a while now and has called Nullumboy in northeast Arnhem Land home for the past two years. He's a man who has never given up on his passions. He's never settled, something I admire him greatly for. So today, I feel truly honoured to be able to share with you his story. Now, just be aware there is a bit of coarse language throughout this episode. We are all adults, but just keep that in mind. Right now, though, it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the colourful journey that is the legendary Jared Zockling's life. Now, just to get things rolling, a little bit of housekeeping. First up, thank you so much for clicking on this podcast. My name's Monica O'Hanlon, and you could say I'm a bit of a sticky beak. I just love hearing people's stories because it's true what they say. Everyone's got one. I work at Gove FM in northeast Arnhem Land in the NT. It's one of the most remote and unspoilt parts of Australia. If you're someone who isn't familiar with it, here's what you need to know. The Yungle people are the traditional owners of this region. Their vibrant culture dates back more than 40,000 years. The hub, where I live, is called Nullumboy, a town created on the Gove Peninsula after the establishment of the bauxite mine. You're probably asking, what's the purpose of this podcast? I've met so many weird and wonderful people, whether they're from here or just passing through. I want to know how their path led them to this tiny little dot on the map. And it would be my absolute pleasure to share it with you. I met you, obviously, through Hef. Hmm. What do you call her, Lizzie or Hef? Lizzie Rascal. Yeah. <laughs> so you were coming into Alice at the time. You were doing like pop, what you kept coming. You were out at a out bush somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. What were you doing? Just coming in, drinking, drinking, <laughs> and um, riding. Because I'd look after the kids all week, and at the time I was a janitor for two of the schools, mm-hmm. and so I had to go and get stuff. We had to get shopping every week or two anyway. So, which station were you at? First Neutral Junction, which is Barra Creek, okay, and then the other side of Barra Creek, which is Sterling, yeah, which runs all the way down to Tea Tree, basically. How did you end up there? You're not from around the Central Australia, are you? I chased a woman to. Tennant Creek in 2006. Oh, she invited me up. We'd broken up in Sydney in Bondi. She'd got a job after we'd broken up. I was living in Bondi for on and off for about eight or nine years. And um, she thought, I just want to leave Sydney, get out of this place. And um, she got a governess job at Tennant Creek Station. Long story. But <laughs> anyway, she ended up getting the arse from there because she was quite a educated, open-minded person and could see all the racism just these people were doing at the station. It's not the right way to say that, but anyway. 
she wasn't exposed to that stuff before. And so she was kicked off or she left and ended up working with the art centre up there. And then she took some of the lady painters, it was called the Pink Palace. Oh, and yeah, she took some of the lady painters down to an exhibition they had in Melbourne. And the connection with football there is Essendon Football Club committee member Beverly Knight ran a Aboriginal art gallery on Brunswick Street in Melbourne. And my missus, or my ex-missus, China her name was, she, <laughs> she said, you should come and live in Tennant Creek with us. It's a wonderful spot. You'd love it. I love footy. I love, you know, you'll love the outback, whatever, whatever. And so she flew me down to Melbourne to try and sell it to me. <laughs> so she'd flown from Tennant Creek with all these women to help them out. Then she flew down to Melbourne and we had a weekend there and she sold it to me, basically. <laughs> I went back and asked a couple of people and I thought, well, what am I doing in Bondi anyway? I mean, I was doing shit, but it was shit. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, fuck it, why not? Yeah. It wasn't like I hadn't done that before. I based, My life's been basically chasing women around <laughs> the world. Because the first story that I wanted to tell you was when I first moved to Sydney, my old man, we were fixing the shitty car I had and I was about to leave on a Sunday and he was not happy that I was going, you know. I had to go because uh, my time was up down there. It was a small town for me now. Now and, and uh, I want I love this woman, and my dad's like they're fixing their world or something. He's like, oh, all you fucking doing is chasing pussy. <laughs> and I was like, you're right, I am, and I will still like yeah. Anyway, so I did that, and it, it's basically been the how it's all. I've I've never had any ambition other than to write, make art, and then the rest just follows that. Never had ambition to get married. Never really had any ambition to have kids, but I'm glad I did both, you know. It all sort of just, like the night I got engaged, I was just pissing on a lime tree we put out the front of the station and from the veranda. <laughs> there was this beautiful breeze. And it was the first time I ever felt that, I was like, like I should ask her to marry me. And she came back out and uh, we were sitting by this lime tree, which would, you know what it's like out in the desert. It's hard to fucking grow anything. Yeah. And we're like, this was our baby, you know. <laughs> so it was Boxing Day night, five or six years back and maybe longer now. And, uh, yeah, she came out and asked her and the first thing she said was, get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so then we had this swearing at each other for the next five or ten minutes and then she eventually said yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> then we partied all night. The mother was in the house, I think, at the time. The kids were, like, this big and went up going into Hilux and playing music really loud and we had a fucking great night. Yeah. And then we just decided, fuck it, let's just get married on Australia Day. Then we'll never forget what the date is. So we got married four weeks later at the registry office in Alice Springs. Wow. And whoever came to that was going to come. It was such a short period of time. And so we had a party, a little bit of a party there, which Hef came to, and then... We had my cousin, who was the Happy High Herbs priest, <laughs> and he did the actual proper wedding that we believed in. That was right by the lime tree. Amazing. Where, where did you actually meet? Epinara. I got my first job in Tennant Creek as a, uh, <laughs> a waiter at this cafe at the truck stop, yeah? <laughs> and uh, that was fucking crazy. But anyway... <laughs> I couldn't live on that money, so, or they were cutting down the house or some shit. Oh, um, whatever happened, I got this job at Jollicurry, which is the, it's sort of like me watch. And they had a program trying to get, uh, it was an Australia-wide program and they needed someone to help try and get kids back into school, back into jobs. I had the whole Barclay to drive around. They gave me a car, money, and I was like, how good is this, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, I actually went out to this school with the job. I was still seeing China. So if you ask me when I first met my future missus, I went to the school and I was that concerned about, because Kath and her friends still laugh about it, I was that concerned um, that when I first met them, so Kath was probably, she's 10 years younger than me, so she would have been 
23, 24, 25, that sort of age. So I was 33, 34, 35. And um, the first thing I said apparently when I met her and her principal was, hi, my name's Jed uh, from Tennant Creek. I work with this organisation. I've got a girlfriend. <laughs> like, I don't remember saying that. And they were like, who is this cockhead? Like, but, yeah, I didn't sort of like, you know, she's a pretty woman, my wife, and, you know, I didn't sort of fall in love. I was still having troubles at home, so it wasn't like I was out, you know, yeah. searching. But that's... That's when thought, you guys met. Yeah, that, that. And so, yeah, they made a nickname for me. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> it was something. Oh, yeah, about my eyes, actually. Bug eyes or something. <laughs> was fucking, it was pretty nasty. <laughs> So not quite love at first sight, but <laughs> it's been a good working partnership. Yeah, especially out here. Yeah, I mean, how did you guys end up out here? Mm, I was happy to stay at Sterling because that's where I started. Oh, no, I started painting properly at Neutral Junction because I had so much extra time in your hands. You could just walk to the school and mm. and you know you know obviously you're driving to town to get your groceries, but she. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she. She. <laughs> the second time we met, it was at the airport. I went to have a smoke at the Sydney airport, and she was out having a smoke. Or I met her. I said, "Oh, you're the girl from that ride. I'm going out for a smoke. Do you want to come out?" She came out for a smoke. We started talking. She was with a friend in um, Sydney to get a conference. There's a world teachers sort of thing where they can go overseas and do a job. She ended up going overseas, but we had a bit of a time together. Oh, four weeks after that, my brother Johnny came up and played at the Tennant Creek Hotel, organised a gig for him. Cool. And uh, in the meantime, I also organised a cousin of mine and another good mate, and, and we did like a spiritual trip out to Uluru. And I, we had to drive back on Australia Day morning to Johnny to play the gig Australia Day night, all the way from Uluru all the way back to Tennant. And I invited Kath to that, and that's right. And my mate was, Johnny was playing. My mate who was with me went to the, he could see he was trying to sneak in on Kath. I hadn't kissed her yet. And he went to the bar and I just passed her when he was at the bar. I was like, got to close the deal here. And that's why we ended up getting married on Australia Day as well, because that was the first time we kissed. Ah. So it's all quite circular. But so why we got up here is that, she got moved into admin job in tenant, and then she was there working. She sort of she's like a bit of a big wig. Like I don't really know what she does because that education system shits me. That's a whole other story. But mm. um, the boss of her at the Barclay um, Education place had lived here with her with his kids and said it's a good place to bring up kids, better than Tenant Creek. And I was actually going down to Alice for my birthday weekend and she sent me a picture of the the view of Melbourne Bay mm. with the boats. She said, do you want to move here? And I was like, same thing. I don't really have any sort of plans. I was like, yeah, why not? You know, I never really wanted to leave Stirling because we had a place to ourselves, like held bushland to ourselves. Mm. And we were five or 600 metres away from the station. We've got on well with the station people, which is unusual, as you probably know out there. So I was very sad leaving there. You know, I was happy to die there. Like, just live wow. there for the rest of my life. That's how much I loved it because she just had so much space. How long ago did you guys move here? Uh, it was Easter two years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so you've got two kids? Yes, two girls. Yeah. How old are they? Maisie's nine, just turned nine, and Ella's seven. Yeah, two ten and two eleven are born back oh, to back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, how cute. Yeah. And they love it here? Uh, yeah, they don't really care. They moved around <laughs> a lot, but yeah, they they um, freaks them out when I take them out in the bush and that. <laughs> I take them to different places. They're like, Dad, I got bogged once with them. All right, and like <laughs> once, and now it's like, oh, they'll get over. It's yeah, it's like an initiation. I think here you got to get here. I got bogged like six years ago. Oh, and they remember it. <laughs> They've lost all trust in you. Oh, yeah. And the thing was, just when we drove up, that was that's a story in itself. I still have gotten over that and written it down. But it took us 14 hours from Barunga. The road was just a nightmare. 300 creeks and we had a dog in the car. We went through water in the dark, which was really scary. Yeah. Um, didn't know really what 
the depth was, particularly the giddies at the end, was the one that I did. Uh. I actually went out there the other day with Kath just to fucking make my peace with the joint because I was, fuck, was dumb. Yeah. Because I was just so exhausted, I just wanted to get here. Because the last last 200 k's took six and a half, seven hours. Because there was just huge potholes. You couldn't go any more than 20 k's. Yeah. A couple of times we got stuck in the mud. I just got us out and the car sounded like it was fucked. And Kath's like, you're going so fast, you know, fishtailing across the road like this. I said, you need momentum. I can't slow down when you get stuck. And the kids were getting frightened, but we're trying to... Then the buffaloes would go past, the dog would go, man, <laughs> fucking nightmare. Yeah, that road can be so dangerous. Mm. Oh, insane. So what are you actually, what are you doing for work here? I'm just painting and writing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because I see on Facebook you put up a lot of poems and stuff, which are absolutely beautiful. You've published a number of books, right? Yep. How many altogether? Mm. I ended up. Self-published them way back in when I was 15, 16 or 17. I just decided that. Uh, Is that the Mongrel Punt Productions? Is yeah, that yours? Punt, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. I it's, love that it's, name. Uh, <laughs> it's a huge company. <laughs> I just decided, well, you know, can I be really bothered getting other people's appreciation of my thing just because to get sent to get 20 bucks for a poem in a magazine? I was like, it's dumb. Just do it yourself. Hmm. And I always thought, well, it's not like you send paintings to someone to get to you know people just work out whether they're good or not and then I just live or die by that and and so yeah I just as it turned out my first book which is that one The Wildest Honour I was working in a place called the Cornstock Bookshop in Sydney in Glebe and behind that shop was uh, a bookbinder who did looked after old ancient books and whatnot, and also made book covers for like um thesis and you know things like uh, photograph albums and they do all the pressing oh, and all that that's beautiful and so that that was the first book and that was the invitation and that was done in oh, there we go 98 so that was wow. my first ever book how old were you in 98 28 wow that's epic so i've been writing for probably 10 years before that it's beautiful and so, and so you publish all your books self-published? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Is that hard? Yeah. So you just got to find someone to help you edit it because you can't, you just can't see some of your mistakes. So there was five, well, I was in Sydney, there was all those, all right? Wow. And then when I came up here, I ended up doing paperback versions of different books. So there's the other, like, yeah. Northern Territory books I made as well. Gosh, you, you, so you've released a so lot of to, books. To answer your question, it's probably <laughs> 10 or 11, I think. Whoa. Because I, I was just having a look through. I haven't read any of like a full book. I've read your poetry, obviously. But um, I was reading some of the titles that come up online and like um, Love Embers of Iner- Iner- inertia. inertia. So I didn't know what inertia was, which is ridiculous, but I Googled it. And so it means a tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged. So how did you get to that? Well, it's just... It was, I was working at a mate's furniture shop in Bondi, which was which sold old stuff from the street as well as he made stuff. It was sort of the start of what they call now, or what he used to call shabby chic. And uh, he'd gone through a breakup, and I was probably going through a breakup or whatever. But the thing that struck me is that, you know, after you fall in love with someone, then it doesn't work out after a period of time, is that you go into this inertia there's love there's embers of love there that you want to stoke up again but you can't because you're tired of it you know you're tired of the fights you're tired of the arguments you're tired of the you're tired of revealing yourself too i think and um and when you revealed yourself and there seems to be no way out still with the relationship yeah you just get tired of it and you don't want to start again yeah. But you do, eventually. Of course. You know? And so that's that's sort of the theme of the book. Most of the books I've done have a – the title is basically the theme. And so, and so you know, you, be, you can also have inertia when, you you know, you fall in love with, um, you know, you're painting or writing or whatever. Sometimes you're just like, oh, it's got me stuffed anymore. Yeah. I just need a break. And that's probably one of the things that I do 
I reckon I do well. People probably can make their own judgments elsewhere, but I don't push it ever. I can, I just, there's a bit of magic that happens. As I was saying to, to Kath the other day, and this is the other day, is, you know, I'm so thankful that she supports me because sometimes there's poems that sit in the back or foreground of your head or background of your head and and uh, when they come out and you lay it down, and, you, and I tend to write very quickly, you're sort of a little bit in awe of how it all happens. Yeah. You know, and I say to her, you know, thank you so much for allowing me that, that space to do that because I know if I was earning in a shit job, just the bottle shop or whatever. No, it was a shit job, but I've had worse. But um, <laughs> a job that you're not passionate about, that you yeah, care just about. any, yeah, just yeah. it just sucked the life out of me. Yeah, and especially looking after kids as well. On top of that, and washing and dishes. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, constant picking undies off the floor. <laughs> you don't need to wear six pairs of undies in a day, love. <laughs> Some people do. (laughs) With these, you said that the titles represent kind of the theme of the book. Would you write all those poems in one go or are they picked like you, like from years ago, like scattered all over the place and then you put them into a book? Right now I've probably written six or seven hundred pieces since the last book. Wow. And I'll just go through and find them that what fits, you know. Yeah. Um. Immaculate Mayhem was another title that I read. Yes. I will then go through them and then I'll work for a period of time on a title. For me, that's very important to get the titles right. I always, you know, I always, it excites me to, when I even look around, I, I like, um, you know, drum media. When you're a kid, or when we were younger in Sydney, there was drum media that would have all the bands playing and uh, okay. it would be at the local pub. It's just like a street rag. Like a beat or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I used to love just going and having a beer and reading that just for the titles of the albums. Yeah. Or the names of the bands. I'd get, you know, and I'd take a bit of paper and, you know, and it would give me ideas. So, yeah, I'm very focused on trying to get that right. Also, what tends to happen is, is there'll be a line or a word or a group of words in one of the poems I've written where I'll just go, oh, well, that's it, you know. And then... This one here is Ross and the Girls, which is a book of stories about looking after kids. It's me and a house husband. Ah, amazing. And living out at the station and Tennant Creek. So that's actually, it's not a book of poetry, it's a Well, a it's a combination of stories. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, yeah. It was me actually, it was a result of me, of us, well, us moving back into Tennant and me a little bit. Pretty pissed off with it, the whole idea, actually, <laughs> and pissed off with the education. And I said to my missus, I said, that's it, I'm not working for anyone else except me and you. So since then, I haven't. That's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sketchy at times, but. that's. I think that's totally normal, mm. especially it's a risk, but, you know, it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. You were talking about your painting too, and I just realised, I didn't realise that you had painted that picture that you posted the other day. It was Marilyn Manson, wasn't yes, it? Yes, That was so, like, incredible, and mm. I didn't even click that. I thought you'd taken a photo of something that you'd seen or something. But no, so, it's all my stuff. Yeah, wow. So you're quite new in painting, did you say? You got uh, into it? Well, no, 2006, that's 12 okay. years. Yeah. Years. I mean, I always had journals yeah. and drew and everything, and I think, one of the great things for me coming out the territory was how the Aboriginal people at a certain age, there wasn't like, you know, kids were skilled at football, drawing, dancing, you know, all the things that I loved. Yeah. And, yeah, storytelling and then mythology. And I was like, wow, this is great, you know. And just seeing... The art of people started painting like old stockmen or whatever starting paint at 75. And I'm like, well, I'm only 32. I've always loved it. Let's give it a go. Yeah. And I always loved wood, so I always paint on, I traditionally paint on wood that I find on the street or whatever. And I don't like canvas also because, I mean, I'll paint on it if it's 
free, basically. I used to pay for it, but having young kids, you know, they don't have to do that. And you put their hand through it and it's all over. All these hours of work has gone down the hill. Yeah. So for me, it's, um, I'm sorry, I was going to tell you the process. And this came about by accident, which is generally the best way to do things, I reckon, when you're creating something. That mistakes and be happy, you know, be patient if you if you can be. The method is basically Mr. Squiggle. <laughs> I uh, just get paint on a board. Depends on what paint I've got left. There's generally not much. And I just throw it on a board and I enjoy that, you know, listen to music or whatever. And I'll do the two or three boards and I'll just put it to the side, go have a cup of tea, let it dry. And because the wood's got its own texture, its own like might have holes in it, the wood might be a bit scrappy in some places, and so the paint does different things when it hits these uh, gradations, I suppose, or blemishes. And, yeah, when I go back to it, I just uh, start seeing things. And there's, yeah, a shape appears. And so I just start building on that and sometimes it doesn't it gets sort of hits a cul-de-sac and I think no, actually that doesn't look good and then I'll just I'll put it aside again I generally keep it in the kitchen our place is full of paintings it's a nightmare (laughs) nightmare but generally where the washing up is or where near the stove or something so I can when I'm talking or making dinner or whatever I can look at the painting and I can see what maybe I can do next with it you know, and, and I think that's a, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to have my own studio and, you know, be able to bash and crash in there, but it's, economically, it's as it stands, this is what, what we do or this is how I do it and, and uh, it works, you know. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you just, it's it's sort of like uh, walking through a, in the bush or in a forest or something and you're, you're lost. And then all of a sudden you... um see a little bit of bread on the ground or maybe a thread from someone you know's clothing and you keep walking because that makes you feel good. I've got something to eat or I've got something that makes me feel good because it's warm with someone else's smell on it or something and you keep walking you find more more bread or like a tie or a sock or, you know, singlet and it just feels like you're getting closer to home. Yeah. And when you get there... You know, you can feel it when you finish a poem or almost finished a poem. You feel like you're standing in a bright light and there's the castle, you know, and it's, you know, in your head, it's all in your head, of course, but it feels like you can't fuck it up from here. It's your home. You, <laughs> yeah. you made it, you know, and that's the most intense feeling. It's very difficult to, to even share that with anyone, but the feeling I have when I get there is, uh, well, it's like winning on the horses. Which I also love doing. <laughs> but there's not so many castles made out of that fortune. <laughs> I, lo- I love the way that, because I kind of, I, I understand what you mean. Like I can relate to that feeling, but I've never known how to express that, I guess. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, it's, it's not, you know what, it's, it's not unique to just me at all. Like it's, and it's not u- unique to people that don't paint or don't write or don't make music or whatever. Because I think we're all capable. In fact, I'm certain of it. It's just as we move out of childhood, we get forced into these other things and we lose our childlike awe of the world. You know, and the funny thing is, if you keep that, you know, when things go wrong in your life, it uh, it's, a, it's a way of um, cleaning the system. You know? Yeah. And I think it's a really valuable thing, you know, to realise that despite, uh, you know, difficult things that we all have to encounter, that by creating something, we can uh, balance that out. Yeah. You know, it's true. And I, I have a lot of respect for you with what you do because um, I feel like I meet a lot of people, like, for instance, I was interning at this online gallery. I was talking to them about what they wanted to do, like the, the actual people that had proper jobs there. I was explaining mine and like my dream would be to like 
documentary series. Like, yeah. I think that would be epic. And he was like, oh, yeah, I like I was interested in that, that. I used to want to do that too, but now I'm realistic or something. And it's like people, I don't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They settle for stuff. They think that it's too hard or I don't I don't know. Well, there's a million reasons and there's a million novels written about it. Yeah. Uh, and a million poems. And uh, everyone's got the choice. And the thing is... It's not the choice always exists. Yeah. It doesn't go away, even though you pretend it does. Because, you know, even people in Russia in the gulags and, you know, people in the Holocaust, all these very difficult situations and suffering that people have got, I mean, you've still got your imagination. To lose that love of having imagination and being able to use it uh, for your own good, let alone everyone else's, I think it's very sad. Yeah. And I, and I, as I say, I, but it's never over. No. You, you can still access it. Yeah. And it's just practice. It's just trying to do something and showing it to someone or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. No, I hear those stories all the time. Yeah. Oh, I wish I did that. Well, you can still do it. It's so true. People are always like, oh, if I had my time again, I would have done painting mm. or, or mm. learned an a instrument or something. It's like, mm. why don't you just do it? Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, and that's what I love about the Aboriginal people's approach to art. It's just what they do. It's just part of them, you know, and it's not all fancy, dancy crap, you know, that we sort of grew up with learning about who the artists were and what their art was and... It's part of them, like their fingers. And I reckon it's all part of us too. Absolutely. You said before, <laughs> you, you said that you've followed a lot of women to different places. You, you've kind of spent your life doing the, going on these adventures. We just had a bit of a blackout, <laughs> power interruption. And you said that you had lived in England, in Brixton. And well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and you said that you performed what was that story you were saying that you performed your poetry? Yeah. Well, I lived in Brixton. I lived also in uh North London another time. I followed a girl over there, a backpacker I met at the Mardi Gras <laughs> in Sydney. In Sydney. <laughs> so that's a story in itself. But nevertheless, I went over and um I met some of her friends the first trip over there and they were all act uh, aspiring actors going to a school in London, which was well regarded. I can't remember the name of it. So they were f- they were fun to be with, you know, quite intelligent bunch. They partied a lot, and I'd recite recite. I'd read some poems to them that I'd written, and they loved it. And so we ended up doing a show with because just to go back a few steps as a, as a kid going to a poetry reading. Though I was interested to hear the poet read and listen to them or see them even, um, it was pretty fucking boring. <laughs> it was like, so when I, you know, I started off doing shows, the first one in 98 at the Bondi Diggers looking over the beach. And we had 100 people there and I had music. I had people reading my poems. Might even had a comedian, I think. And, you know, I just wanted to be a show not just about the poetry but about a, a night. Yeah. And uh, so ever since then, that's how I made the shows. And so in London, um, yeah, I got these actor guys to read, uh, women and men, both brilliant. And of course, they'd help bring their crowd as well. That's why that was a, you know, it was a smart idea because the people, um, you know, they want to get on stage, they want to show how good they are. So they bring their friends to show, you know, show them what they're doing. So yeah, Great crowds and great parties. Yeah. Great parties. And uh, loved London. Didn't want to leave. 
but I'm glad I did because you know what I saw. This sort of ties in with moving up to Tennant Creek. Was that it was 2004 or five, and I was in a tube station. Not sure which one, but there was a huge picture of uh, Uluru, and I was just staring at it one day, and I was like, and I used to go, must have gone to that station a lot, of, but I used to see it regularly. So I was like, I felt a bit lost, not lost. I just felt that I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen that or felt that. And I felt like, even though much I love London, I felt as a Aussie, I was missing out on something. And so, even though I never moved to the bush or the outback to to um, specifically go and find that, it ended up happening. Yeah. And you know, that's why as I was saying to you earlier. You know, I don't never really have any set plans. And sometimes things just happen. And so far, so good, you know. <laughs> I um, I was doing a little bit of a stalk on you before you got here. And in your Facebook um, about section, I think you've got poet, artist, old AFL player. Yeah. So you used to play a bit of AFL? Yeah, Aussie Rules, yeah. Uh, yeah, played in Canberra. Very successfully. Um I loved it. I was a semi-professional player. I got paid lots of money to play footy. Yeah, and amazing. I was, yeah, very lucky. But I was riding at the time and I wanted to be a poet. I was uh, 22, 23, well-known around town as a footballer and um, I was like, football, art, writing, you know, how am I going to do this? And then one day I just thought, fuck it. I just put up some posters in the change rooms about my first poetry gig at the, uh, what was the name of this old tavern? can't think of it, next to the Boulevard Cinemas. Anyway, the name of the poetry reading was called Making Love to a Statue. And I'd been doing some labouring and I'd found this statue in a lady's backyard and I'd asked if I could take it. She was a sculptor. So, yeah, so I put that up on stage on the table with black cloth and that was my first poetry reading. But, yeah, because poets were, you know, Aussie men, poetry, like it's... Especially with, like, AFL, like it was sport. Yeah, it's, it's not a natural fit. But, you know, I think it is. Now, anyway, I think now it, it is. Yeah, definitely. But back then it was almost like coming out. Yeah. You know, and I thought, well, this is what I am. I love doing it and uh, I love writing about it. I mean, I remember being on the, having a shot for goal once and a guy said, oh, you, you're right, I can swear quite hard, or will swear. Yeah, he's got his arms up in the air and I'm there trying to kick a goal over his head and he's like, yeah, you write poetry, I've read your fucking book, it's fucking shit. <laughs> anyway, I kicked the goal and I, I came up to him and gave him a kiss and I said, at least I've got one reader, brother. <laughs> So, yeah, that was, it was good. You know, you don't sort of sit back and sort of feel proud of those things, but now you look at it you think, well, you know, I'm glad I did that because if I didn't do that, it would have been forced somewhere else. And, yeah. Uh, and I became known for it. And and then, yeah, going to Sydney, I thought um, as being a romanticist and also a fantasist and a dreamer, thinking that, uh, you know, I'd quit footy and go to Sydney and within three weeks I'd have a play on at the theatre and, <laughs> you know, I'd finally have all these good things happen to me and, of course, it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I kept writing. That's epic. And, uh, yeah, haven't stopped. Did your teammates hang shit on you for poetry and stuff or did yeah. they? No, they still do. Yeah? Mm. That's good, I guess. That's like kind of keeps that fire burning a bit, hey? Oh, I wasn't trying to do it for their satisfaction. I wasn't doing it um, to piss them off. Yeah. I was just doing it. And, uh, you know, my thing is just I like getting better at things. And the more you practice, the more you sort of observe the world around. Like even looking at these posters, I'm looking now at words that I could use. And, um, you know, that, that word there, for instance, what a great word, ecstatic. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember seeing a word I still remember to this day seeing um, on a year nine English classroom 
blackboard. It's the first time I'd ever seen this word. And it was hedonism. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. The lady might have been, but might have had an accent. She might have pronounced it hedonism. Um, but I was fascinated by it. And then that day, when that class, they, um, she, she said, does anyone know what it is? I'm like, no, nah, no. Nah. She goes, pleasure seeking. Or a hedonist is a pleasure seeker. And uh, that was year nine. And uh, I don't think there's any doubt I'm a little bit of a hedonist. <laughs> but, yeah, as you get older, you, the pleasures get closer and closer to home and smaller and smaller and um, the little things that count. You know, you're not, you're not um, excited by fantastical ideas that um, come to nothing. It's more uh, simple things like just having Vegemite toast in the morning and just being so happy to be able to have it with no bullets flying around you or the kids have gone to school and you can have it in the quiet and you've got the jug boiling and the tea's been made and, you know, and I can go out the back and have a smoke and and um, do it in silence, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, just little things like that thrill me. Mm. Yeah. Just to be able to spend time in your own head, which just sounds funny here because I can hear myself talking. <laughs> it's an unusual experience. <laughs> I'm glad that I can give you that experience. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's the perfect segue. What What are your? I ask everyone this. What are your hopes and dreams for the next five to ten years? None. None at all. Just happy to. Looking forward to going home, having a cup of coffee, and having a smoke, and saying, "Well, I did that." Because I was scared of coming in here. Why? I don't know. I'll think about that. But I, I think it was because, I mean, I know, I let the people know, I do, I have, you helped me do something down in Alice, remember? You got me a, you got me a spot reading at that poetry gig in, on the on the mall there. Oh, that does sound familiar. Rings yeah. Bell, anyway, yeah. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you got to do it. And I'm like, oh, I don't like doing that shit. <laughs> And you're like, nah, come on, because Lizzie's there. And she's like, just do it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> fuck. So I got a cabin from the casino and I read there. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, I did it. And I didn't do it again. But um, <laughs> that was, um, you know, I suppose it was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, to answer your question, I prefer just to sit around with mates, you know, and uh, then you can talk about yourself. I suppose talking publicly about yourself, it just feels a bit um, Hollywood, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is probably the furthest you can get from Hollywood. Well, now you're going to see how my mind works. I love it. Uh... Jared, where were you actually born? In Canberra. In Canberra, okay. Yeah. So you, would you say that you're a city boy? Uh, well, the thing was, Canberra back in the day was was a lot smaller and we lived right on the edge of the bush. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, was, Canberra's a city, there's no doubt, but back then it was a town, uh, tripled in size, but I definitely became a city boy. Like, we, we had lizards and went up the mountain billy carting and did all that stuff in the dams and catching yabbies and... Uh, Snake, looking for snakes. And, like, we, we had five kids in our family, four boys, so we tortured wow. our poor mother and father, <laughs> uh, who are still alive, thankfully. I'm still getting over it. But uh, then when I did move to Sydney, you know, I definitely became a city boy, a Bondi boy in the end uh, for years, and um, I used to work in Glebe, and I used to say, you know, I used to be a wanker about it all, saying, you know, I'd never go any further west than Marrickville, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, always be careful when you make big statements. So I ended up at fucking <laughs> Barra Creek. I love it. So, yeah. well, so, and then you went to London, obviously. You've lived in a ton of other places. But going from a city and then into a small town, how do you find it? Because now you're in one of the most remote places in Australia, at least, in the Southern Hemisphere, I think. What do I love about small towns? Having lived for eight years on a cattle station where there's only a, 
a group of five or six people, these huge expanses of land and only a small number of people, is that you wave to each other every day. This is just a small example. Now, the day that the person who's the boss or the wife's boss, sorry, the husband's wife, um, doesn't wave at you, you're just like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know, it's very difficult. Uh, it's quite stressful at times trying to make sure everything's all right, stay out of their way, when to go and ask for something. And you, in a way, you became more independent, which was was probably a good lesson for me too, you know. The one thing, you know, and I was happy to, to live my life out there in the cattle station. I loved it because I, I was learning things and I love learning things, you know, and, and uh, you know, how the, not only from the white fellas, the black fellas, absolutely. Um, and then moving back into tenant, one of the things I noticed about small towns is they've got like a spine and small towns have a group of people that, don't leave. Now, there's shards that fall off that, but eventually they come back. But the great thing about a small town is that the history's it's there in front of you, you know, and you can find out about it quite quickly. Like, for instance, a Sydney or a Melbourne or Adelaide, though they have that, it's, it's, it's been so um, overrun by people that it... it there's only pockets of, you know, there's, there's like a suburban sort of thing or a community thing here and there, but small towns have a, literally have a group of people you can go to to understand how how it all how it all came to this, you know. And and that's what I also loved about, you know, living in the outback is that there's two stories. There's the blackfella story and the whitefella story. And... And the combination of the two, and I found all that fascinating. And you know, I uh, was surprised at the racism, and now I'm not so surprised. You know, as I got older, I realised I grew up in a racist house, uh, not just um, Aboriginal people, Vietnamese, Italians. You know, it was so. It was it was just part of the vernacular. You know, that's the that that. I still fight that, you know, because it just comes up in your head just as like like a childhood childhood thing. One of the things that I think would be a vital thing to do is that instead of sending kids off to war or their gap year going over to London or bloody New York or whatever, they should spend a year up in remote communities or six months and give them a couple hundred bucks a week to do it. But, you know, I have not met anyone that hasn't come to tenant or station or been anywhere up here with me who's uh, hasn't changed their point of view, and it's particularly and that's including my dad, which is you know he's 83, 84, whatever. So yeah, that's 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 vital, I think, for the for the nourishment of the nation. That you've got to, these kids have got to come up here and um, spend time, and I really think that would be a vital thing for. Uh, helping this division we still have. Totally. Mm. Yeah, because a lot of people, they're just not given the opportunity. You know, like if, if you're not exposed to something, then how are you supposed to just understand? Yeah, understand and change your mind. You know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, going back to the small town thing, it's like you can't make a mistake in a small town. You can't, you, people do. But there's things that, you know, I'm fascinated by is, you know, those that blow in, those that um, have lived there all their lives, and then someone like you who's, who's had a childhood here and gone away and decided to come back, you know, um, because it feels the right thing to do because it feels like home. Uh, so many different shades. And the thing is, yeah, with a small town, you can... It's, this is a metaphor. You can reach out and touch it, you know. And uh, you know, with Sydney and Melbourne and all these places, it's just you know, there's only little areas. But you know, towns um, like Tennant Creek, for instance, despite all that bad publicity, I had a wonderful time. At the time of my life there, I loved it. And the, the mates I had, I have there, you know, I still got and and 
they taught me a lot. Um, and I'll be forever grateful. And, you know, and, and coming here, you know, I just find it takes about two years just to, and my thing was just keep your head down for two years and see what, observe it, observe, observe, and then see what happens after that. But, yeah. And you've just ticked over that two year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just, you know, because you sort of, you, you probably know yourself, as you get older, you tend to do things in a pattern, even though you probably don't notice it. Yeah. And so you see the similar people, you know, um, you get to know them, they get to know a little bit about you, you know. It's, it's sort of like birds walking past each other going, yeah, yeah, I know you're a bird, I know you're a bird, but and then eventually the feathers start getting shown and all the different colours underneath, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that that's an interesting part of living in a small town as well. It's like we had an opportunity to go to Darwin my wife's work, but I was like, no, no, no. I'm too, this is, I love a small town, you know. Yeah. I don't really want to go back to a big city. I like visiting them. But, you know, just even this morning we were running late for school and I was thinking, shit, imagine being in Sydney trying to get the kids just to a train station so they can get on a train to get to a bus to get to school and how pissed off I'd be with the world, let alone them. <laughs> and it's like all we do here is just like well, we're three minutes late or five minutes late and you just drive down the road and there's no traffic lights. There's one pedestrian crossing. just seems logical that that's a better way to live. Totally. Mm. I didn't ask you this before but I am curious. What was your first impression of this region? Well, uh, it's beautiful. One of the things that struck me that I didn't expect was the f- how tall the trees were. Really? And, yeah, having lived in the desert, like, you yeah, know, there's always true. space. Here I feel a bit claustrophobic with those trees when you're out there driving around. I feel the opposite. When I lived in Alice, I felt claustrophobic and everyone's like, what do you mean? It's wide open spaces. I don't know, but here I'm fine. I think it's because I'm on the sea and the, the trees I find is a comfort in yeah, thing. No, I felt the opposite. It's sort of like, I think it's falling me or something, you know. <laughs> um, wow. And, yeah, the town's... Definitely got its own funkiness to it. It feels like a, a wealthier town than Tennant Creek, but that's not necessarily true because I know that's I know that's not true because even though the lawns are well mowed here or whatever, that doesn't constitute necessarily wealth just because your house looks good. Mm. Um, getting asked to cut your grass, I thought was very surprised about. <laughs> Did I, they actually ask you? I wasn't very happy about it either. I felt like rebelling and growing at like 20 foot tall. <laughs> I didn't know that was uh, it. I was a bit shocked by that. I had to go <laughs> get a six pack and a bottle of wine. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the thing is living out in the desert, it felt like living in the ocean, near the ocean. Like I didn't feel the mist of, you know, because living in Bondi for years, because we live right on the water there, I didn't feel the mist of that at all. In fact, it felt, strangely, even better. And because then you can go to the creeks and once it rains and it's just magnificent. But, um, yeah, I'm, I, this is such a beautiful part of the world. Uh, and I'm learning to, you know, take more and more of it in and understand how it all works, you know, because it takes time. It's definitely a different... I can see why the desert kids are always freaked out by the uh, Arnhem, Arnhem Land kids and Groot Island kids because it's just so out of their imagination, yeah. you know, living up here. Um, I can see why back in the day that, you know, because these Warramungu mates of mine, they would tell me the stories how they, when they'd come down, um, that they'd always worried about the people from the Gulf, you know. And it's just simply like any human, it's because they're so different, you know. Yeah. They're just not sure, you know. Uh, but yeah, fascinated by, uh, fascinated by just the whole trading thing with the Macassans and all that. Yeah. Love those stories. Totally. Um, 
just love. I do a lot of reading about the area that I live in, and you know, it's a fascinating area, fascinating. So, and beautiful mix of um, uh, just a beautiful mix of Australia, mixed with the tropics. Plus, it does feel like a, there's a, there's something Asian about it or something. There's not, yeah, a, yeah I don't know, totally. what's, yeah, there's something. There's a third part to it that uh, I find fascinating. I haven't written a book up here yet. I've done lots of paintings. It's been fertile ground for that. But, yeah, I look forward to see what comes. I mean, I've certainly written lots of pieces up here. Yes, yeah, so Cool. Would, would you read us something? <clears throat> this is from a book called Ross and the Girls. This is called Flowers. Don't open your mouth. Before you open your ears, my auntie June used to always say, just like a flower. She was right, of course. Old people generally are, except in the case of Betty and me. You see, Betty was 67 and I was 70, and we didn't seem too smart for our ages. I'd never met Betty before, I'd never heard of her. We got on like old friends the first time we met. I met her via a cousin of mine, Des, who came down to Tennant Creek from Darwin for a darts tournament. He came over for a barbecue the night after he finished his comp and lo and behold he brings this Sheila. I thought, here we go, he's got himself another sort. So he started ploughing into the beers around the fire and turns out this Sheila wasn't one of Des's girlfriends. As Des said, as I was turning steaks, they were just mates. Now in all my 70 years I must have heard that line about four and a half thousand times so of course I didn't take any notice. So the night ended after a good barbecue and some nice wine, a few joints at about one in the morning. Now it was at this point that Des said he was going home, which seemed fine except it was going to leave Betty, my good self, by ourselves. And I was already thinking all the things that you shouldn't be thinking. And it also meant that everything Des had been saying was true. And I must say Des and the truth had never been close neighbours. So Des is gone and it's just Betty and me and the town is pretty quiet at this point. I ask if she'd like to come inside and listen to some music. And almost by the time I say Rodriguez, she's sitting on my lap chewing on my old sunburnt neck and my less than busy lap's getting pretty full. And so it started pretty much just there and pretty quick it was too. Betty was a fast one. She was also a chatterbox. The next thing I know I get a phone call from Des a few days later, telling him that Betty was shifting down to Tennant Creek to be with me. Hold your horses, Des, I replied. Give me your address. I'll sort this out. He gave me her address and I drove straight to Darwin. Ten hours ain't much when you're 70, especially when it's love you're trying to avoid. And she knew I was coming. The house was full of music. Rodriguez was playing. You better believe it. There were bird of paradise plants in every conceivable slinky vase and it was a scene I would have fallen for years ago. And then, of course, she had a table of tropical fruit and there was some grass on the coffee table and a large, large white seashell and all manner of expensive wine and beer on ice in a silver bucket the size of a truck tyre. And she moved around me like some sexy huntsman, her legs looking to my eye about 42 in her silk white sarong. Her eyes looked 21. I felt 17. And then she got me with the prawns and the ribeye. And can you believe it? Red and orange flowers in the salad. And then she got me with her iron bath where she got me with her mouth and she got me there living with her a fortnight later. Darwin has so many flowers. I love that. It's great. Lots of stories to tell. We've all got them. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for coming and having a chat. Definitely not. I just looked at the time. We're running over an hour. Honestly, I love your stuff. I can't. I, I need to read more of it, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to put that on my list to do this week. And your art, just keep doing what you're doing. I love it. So inspiring. Thanks, Mon. That was episode 17 of the podcast. Can you believe it? After a short break, it is good to be back. Now, as usual, I would like to say a huge, huge thank you to GovFM. This community radio station has so much heart and I couldn't do it without them. So really, thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
Uh, I would also like to thank you for listening and for all your support so far. It has been an absolute honour to have you on this journey with me. My name's Monica O'Hanlon. That was North East Arnhem Land with Mon. I'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.